This is the Education Gadfly Show. You think they got time, time, Mike? (laughs) What? We don't turn these things out in a year, you know? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, whose name I'm going to butcher, but I'll try anyways, Laura Jimenez. Was good that job. pretty good? good? Job. Uh, yes, Director of Standards and Accountability in K-12 Education at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. So happy to be here. And our co-host as well, David Griffith. Also a pleasure, Mike. Who, before we went on the air, as I tried, as I butchered Laura's name as I was trying it out, said that made me sound like a conservative, the way I said it. Yeah, I'm so glad we edited that out so you could repeat it live. <laughs> uh, it reminds me, do you remember the Saturday Night Live skit where they... Uh, it was some newscasters, and it was like whenever they got to a Spanish word, they like overemphasized it. And oh, right. It was Burrito. <laughs> Yes. Always one of my favorites. Well, Laura, welcome to the show. I forget, is this your first time on the Education Gadfly show? It is. Well, we're excited to have you here. Great. Thanks so All much. right. We have collaborated with uh, CAP over mm-hmm. the years on many things. And by the way, my, my some friends on the right you know, would, would therefore call us collaborators in not a nice way uh, for that. But we believe in, uh, in working across the aisle and across the ideological spectrum and we can find common ground. And we're going to talk about one of those areas where we agree on some things disagree on others and that is around high school graduation standards let's do it on ed reform update so laura over the summer you guys published an analysis of what states are required today for graduating from high school uh first and foremost what what did you find what's the basic state of play out there around the country yeah so Essentially, we wanted to know how aligned these requirements are. So do you have to take the same courses to receive a high school diploma? Mm -hmm. And are those the same courses that will make you eligible for public university admissions? Right. Right. And and so the best example of this going way back, right, is California has these A to G requirements, which were very, you know, the university system said, if you take these courses and pass them, that that puts you on track for our for our coursework. Yep. At our institution. But right. interestingly, the A through G requirements are not the requirements to get a high school diploma in That's California. Right. That's right. That's right. And uh, you find there's not very many states that actually do this, just a handful. It's four. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, when we saw this, I have to say that I, you know, have argued uh, on social media and some of the things I've written that, look, it is not realistic right, to set that high a bar, especially... I mean, there's one thing is the coursework question. The second one is to look at something external like testing, like an assessment and say, you've got to hit a score on an assessment that is a college ready score. In other words, you don't have to take any remedial education in order to graduate from high school. Turns out that is a very high bar. Mm-hmm. And today, something like 40% of our high school graduates can meet that bar. Right. And that just, you know, just, just, we're not going to, and there's no way any governor in the country is going to deny a diploma to 60% of the kids. Uh, and, and furthermore, if you want some kids doing high quality career and technical education in high school, it's really hard to fit that in if they also have to take all these traditional college prep courses. So what do you say to all of that? Am, am I wrong about that? Or, you know, or if states push back and say, look, that's just not, you know, the, there should be one standard about high school graduation that's about basic uh, skills and literacy uh, and preparation for citizenship. And, and there's a much higher bar that's about actually being ready to go into post-secondary uh, institutions. Yeah, so I would say that 
the argument for high expectations in high school coursework is the same argument for high expectations in academic standards. Right. Mike, you support the Common Core. I do, indeed. And here's the thing. States can adopt the Common Core and even implement them well. Yep. But if they don't require kids to take the classes that actually teach those standards, Mm -hmm. it's kind of for naught. And that's what we ended up finding is that in a lot of states, they don't even require kids to take past Algebra 1. Right. When we know that the Common Core standards in math go far beyond that. Mm -hmm. So it really is about having rigorous academic expectations Mm -hmm. and thinking about expectations holistically. So it's not just the standards. Mm -hmm. It's also the coursework. It's also the curriculum. Now, we didn't cover curriculum, but you know the research as well as I do that a lot of states aren't using a curriculum that's aligned with sure. the common core. But, but Laura, you know, and look, I do support higher standards, but I've also always said that we have got to make sure that we are not being utopian, right? Uh, you know, it, it's understandable that rhetorically we talk about we want all kids to be ready, college and career, but to literally prescribe that we have a system where we expect 100% of kids to meet these extraordinarily high standards. Um, I, I just feel like it puts schools in an impossible situation, especially high schools who have kids coming in three, four, five grade levels behind. Uh, and we say, okay, in four years, we want you to get those kids caught up to these very high standards. Uh, I think what you end up, you know, well, you can see where this is going to go. They're going to put kids in courses that they're not ready for. The kids aren't going to do well, or they're going to play games to redefine algebra two, uh, you know, to actually to look, you know, so they can claim that they're college and career ready, but really that's just going to be the same old algebra one or even lower. I mean, I don't know, David, as a high school teacher, formerly way in here. I, I don't consider that my, my primary <laughs> Wave. I did go to high Speak school. Speak for the nation's I, teachers, yeah, David. Yeah, Come on. Okay, uh, right. I, I, I mean, I feel like this conversation is conflating several things, and maybe that's why we're talking past each other. Yeah. I mean, one one is transparency, right? Which I think everybody here is for. I mean, basically, it's unacceptable that kids, you know, graduate from high school, go to college thinking they're ready. Yes. And then they aren't. Right. Yes. Um, so yes. somehow we have to be mm-hmm. honest. Another is the incredibly complicated question of, you know, social promotion, essentially, right? And like, Mm -hmm. you know, if a kid isn't really ready for the next grade, Mm -hmm. do we push them on or not? And I think there, I mean, there really are arguments for both. And I think there are probably trade-offs there. And then, um, I mean, a third one, I think, is is just the question of, I mean, expectations, like you say. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of rolling them into one conversation. So, I mean, for me, it would be clarifying to hear both of you say, okay, so what is your response to the idea of, like, having two graduation like two, two, two different kinds of diplomas, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. one of which is, I mean, it gets out the transparency issue, right? Which is, right. look, this diploma says you're college ready, right? This diploma says you took all the courses and you stuck with it, right? Um, I'm curious to hear both of your reactions to that because it kind of unparcels well, and, some of and these let's things. let's also talk about courses, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is another area where it's a little complicated. I mean, there's a lot of interest today in competency-based education, mm-hmm. moving away from Carnegie units, saying, why are we making kids sit in these courses? In many cases, they, they may be ready to test out of them if they've already know the material or maybe they could be doing better things with their time. Again, career and technical education, if, if we want to be like other countries that do this seriously— you know, by the time kids are 16 or 17 or 18, they should be spending a lot of time doing more applied work, maybe in a workplace, an apprenticeship. You just can't do that if you're sitting through English 3 and Algebra 2 and, you know, World History and Spanish 4. And I mean, it's just hard to fit it all into one day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just feel like we're, we're at a little bit of a confusing point of view. Look, in, in Ohio, where everybody knows we do a lot of on-the-ground work, we have been fighting a very lonely battle to maintain the state's 
high expectations for high school graduation, which they waived two years in a row. And finally, for this current school year that we just began, they're going to keep them in place. And there's a lot of urban districts, especially that expect 10, 20% of their kids not to get high school diplomas. Mm -hmm. Now, even it's a higher standard than they've had before, but it's much lower than a college and career ready standard. Mm -hmm. In Ohio, though, you know, they, they do have a route for CTE. And they have a different route for kids that can show that they're at a college and career ready level on the SAT or the ACT, but they still do require a course sequence also. They still require the Carnegie units. And maybe at some point we got to say, how can we move past courses? I mean, let's, and now, you know what the trick is? And we all know it means relying more on tests. If you want to rely less on courses, you probably got to rely more on Mm -hmm. some kind of assessments to let kids demonstrate their competence in these various areas and let them pass out of it. Yeah. And it's got to be better tests, right? It can't just be the, you know, fill in the bubble test. But yeah. uh, to your point, David, yes, there's a lot wrapped into this. It's not just the courses, it's course quality. We saw data out of Delaware that showed lots of kids in algebra two and higher levels of math still wind up in remediation once yeah. they're in college. Yeah. Course quality is a huge, yes. huge factor. And there's also preparing kids to meet this higher bar. So our findings really have implications for the entire K-12 system. It isn't just yeah. the courses and their names. It's ensuring the rigor of those courses that teacher teachers are equipped to teach them and that students are ready to succeed in them. Yeah. And, 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 and look, all of this, whatever we do in high school, I've been making this argument, none of it makes it any easier for what we need to do in K-8. to I mean, let's face it. If a kid comes into high school, if they're 14 years old and they do not have strong reading, writing, and math skills, and and in order to have good reading skills and reading comprehension, they need to know quite a bit about history and science and the world and art and music. Uh, So if they don't come in with that, uh, a traditional college prep route is going to be closed off to them and high quality career and technical education is going to be closed off to them. I mean, it's hard to make that work for kids who are way behind. Um, However, I think we can get better at being clear about what does it mean to be ready for post-secondary education for different kinds of post-secondary. And look, Fordham and Achieve and EdTrust long ago, we, you know, we were one of the ones that said, looks like for math and reading skills, they're at about the same level for what you need for something more technical. For versus, But we got to keep digging in on that. I mean, let's really understand if you want to do a high quality technical route, let's say into a healthcare career mm-hmm. uh, that you know results in say a two-year degree at a community college you know what do you need in order to start that pathway when you're 16 or 17 in terms of your skills and it may be you know maybe the math standard is the same but maybe the the reading is lower and the writing is lower than that and it doesn't mean you need to be taking you know English three and studying poetry uh, in your junior year I mean I, you know again these are tough issues that we got to wrestle with but I just worry that it's easy to demagogue and just say well the states aren't setting a high enough standard or they're not living up I mean I think they are wrestling with these difficult realities and if we don't wrestle with it Laura I just think we, we create a situation where it is virtually impossible for schools to experiment with high schools that do things very different and mm-hmm. possibly better yeah and I don't at all disagree with you I think that we're in the very early stages of understanding competency-based education. New Hampshire's been at it for, what, a decade? And they're still only in four districts. And what we saw there when we visited was amazing. But I can understand that uh, this type of education may not work for every school. The implications of how you design the school day, how you um, bargain with the teachers' union about hours. I mean, there's so many implications around providing that type of education that we saw where kids were fully engaged in their learning and, in fact, designing their learning. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I would say if, if we're not setting the right policies, it's not providing the right North Star mm-hmm. for schools and districts to follow. And that's really our point. All right. Well, good. Hey, this is exactly the conversation we need to keep having because uh, th- this high school area, I, I would argue, is particularly unsettled. Um, but there's huge potential if we can figure out how to get this right. So thank you, Laura, for coming on the show again from the Center for American Progress. I hope you come back sometime soon. Yeah, just invite me. All right. <laughs> and now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. You done with this weather? Or you like it? You grew like up in it. Virginia. I do. What? I like the heat. I do. But as long as I have a big, I just got back from vacation. As long as you have a really big umbrella, uh-huh. you know, on the beach. It just needs shade when it's this hot. And I it, can't believe I, I, I was throwing that question out there. I thought the answer would be, of course I don't like it. It feels like it's 110. It's like a million oh, degrees and the know, humidity is I mean, horrible. are we really going to complain in the dead of winter around here when we're all miserable and sad and I cold? I like winter. I like cold. <laughs> I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I've been at my computer all day as usual. <laughs> That's true. That is true. And, and stay there, David. All right. Stay. Okay. Keep working. All right, Amber, what you got? We got a new study out in Educational Researcher by Doug Harris and colleagues that examines the prospectus of teachers who taught in New Orleans both before and after Hurricane Katrina hmm. and thereby experienced teaching before and after the massive reforms that took place there. Uh, it was conducted in spring of 2014 and includes 323 teachers who taught in public schools again before 2005 and in 2013-14. It represents 42% of the 771 teachers who taught in New Orleans before and after the storm and were still teaching in 2014. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and do we have any idea of that 700? Was that a small percentage of the total teaching force before the storm? I do not know the total know. teaching force. It's Sounds pretty small, right? Uh, it's importantly, it's not the same. Because when I first picked up the study, I thought it would, could be the same survey administered before and after yeah, yeah, the reform cool. and storm, but it's oh, not. It's not. They're asking them to retrospectively reflect on yes. the school that they taught in roughly nine years ago, mm. yeah. which could be mm. a little problematic, but mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, anyhow, they're asked to respond to a number of statements and to indicate whether the statement was more or less like their pre-Katrina school, no difference, or more like their current school, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, In a nutshell, teachers report a significant change indicating improvement in three areas having to do with the learning environment first. A majority reported that their current school had greater emphasis on both academic and social-emotional goals compared Mm -hmm. to the pre-reform school. That they use testing data for instruction more now than before. Mm -hmm. And that more students stayed in school. But they found no significant differences relative to student engagement and the quality of the teacher and student relationship. Mm-hmm. As for the work environment, teachers report an increase in teacher supports and stronger school culture and an increase in school level autonomy, but not in their autonomy over instruction. Mm-hmm. They also reported big increases in greater use of data and administrative decisions and an increased likelihood of dismissing low-performing teachers. All sounds good to me. All sounds right. <laughs> uh, they also, this was kind of interesting and sad, they also perceived students' home lives were now more problematic than before the storm. Wow, really? Yeah, and some qualitative data, I think, just said perhaps some lingering trauma from the hurricane. Yeah. Uh, and they also reported longer working longer hours and experiencing greater staff turnover in their newer schools. Mm -hmm. Moreover, an increase in the school's test scores generally meant that teachers responded more favorably to a variety of survey questions, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of indicated something. But the the, the teachers in schools that are improving, as judged by test scores, are more positive on a number of these different questions. 
The recovery school district teachers saw more positive changes relative to their Orleans Parish teacher colleagues Mm -hmm. when it came to professional collegiality and satisfaction with the teacher evaluation process. Hmm. So, finally, charter teachers reported more school autonomy than to teachers in traditional schools. So, then we go back to this, like, survey design thing of being retrospective. Um, So, they thought, you know, these perceptions could be clouded by their views of the reforms, right? And not Mm -hmm. necessarily the schools themselves and the changes they're in. So, they ran a bunch of checks to suss out whether this is what's happening. And they found that indeed their overall view of the reforms had colored their perceptions of Mm -hmm. these various things and maybe caused them to inflate or deflate their assessment, right, of the, um, of how the schools had changed over time. Uh, And they claim that, but when you read it, and this gets kind of wonky, but I think at the bottom, the bottom line is that they basically said that this doesn't invalidate our results because the overall effect of teachers reviewing the reforms either positively or negatively sort of offset one another. Hmm. And if anything, the, the results are biased a little bit more towards teachers being more negative about their pre-Katrina schools. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and finally, as a capstone question, this is kind of what they make a big deal of, and I just don't make that big a deal of it. But anyway, they have this capstone question that says, I'm better off as an educator now than I was before Katrina. Okay. Hmm. 38% agreed with that statement. Hmm. 62% disagreed. Mm-hmm. And then they perceive it as an indictment of job satisfaction. Okay, hmm. but when you dig it in, dig into the survey, you find that it's these teachers responded positively to teacher salaries going up. They responded positively to having more supports, more focus on academics, all these things I just told you about a second ago. Um, and then they looked at whether the decreases in job security, because they did say they have less job security now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they asked them about that, and they did say they work more hours, those things were uncorrelated with job satisfaction. Was there a neutral option on that? So question? the option was no difference. Okay. No difference. Yes. What to okay. make of that? I don't, huh. So I just thought, you know, that doesn't add up to me. That I mean, yeah. and and maybe they could simply be responding. This is just my interpretation that they don't have tenure protection anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. it says I'm better off as an educator now than mm-hmm. I was before Katrina. So. And the 62% that included the no difference or not? That's the disagrees. That's the disagrees. Yes. Okay, so they're actually... Is there any way hmm. that some of them might have misread that as I'm a better educator now? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it seems confusing. No. It's an odd question. Well, know, but And salaries have gone up. That's yes. it. I thought maybe it was the salaries. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, when did they do the survey? You 2014. Said? Wait, 2014? 2014. What's Four years about? ago? Yeah, 2014. What's wrong with that? It's 2018. <laughs> I mean, we know these things take time. It takes time, time Mike. <laughs> what? We don't these turn things these things out in a time. year, well, you know? That's interesting. I don't know. It's during still the depths of the recession. I don't know. Who knows? That's ancient history. Wait, four years to get this right. survey Research results Research takes time. Oh, my God. I mean, you know that from Well, from I was going to say that. Well, maybe it's the teacher strikes and all this stuff. Well, that clearly is not the case because that no. only happened a few months ago. No. I mean, I think they're... Could be a number of things going on there. I agree that there's a little bit of a disconnect, but I'm also sort of inclined to take teachers at their word and assume that they can read. Um, yeah, I just don't know what. Well, how do we interpret they the question? Read. Yeah, David no, I know. Like no, that. I know. I mean, I think yeah. Look, honestly, we don't know. They answered the question that was asked, right? They didn't. Right. They didn't. There wasn't a follow up question right. that asked why do you 
why do you feel that like way? Like we right? do on our is, surveys. Is it a feeling about Bobby Jindal at the time? I mean, who knows? I don't know. Well, yeah, but I mean, there's lots of other, when you look at these other things that don't correlate, right? It doesn't, yeah. that makes it even harder to figure out what the heck they're talking about. I mean, it could be the tenure thing. I mean, another thing that I, I seem to recall from another Doug Harris study was that actually the kids who returned to New Orleans were some of the most disadvantaged, mm-hmm. even within mm-hmm. New Orleans. Yeah, right. Um, right. And, and you know, so it could mm-hmm. be they're just working with a really Different tough population. population. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, I mean, um, we do have that little little one question that said the kids were worse off in their home lives now. Yeah. yeah. So, could be. Whew. All right. Well, a lot to unpack there. Yeah. But, but what a neat study, right? Yeah. Like that they were able to actually kind of construct this and, and ask these teachers. Um, yeah. That was a cool, cool idea. All right. Very good. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Doug Harris. You know, uh, there was an article a few weeks ago about how we know so much about education from North Carolina, thanks to the great uh, you database. know database mm-hmm. there. Matt Barnum put that out. But we also know an awful lot from New Orleans, thanks right. to Doug Which Harris. Which is a unicorn, Center. though, right? It's like... a bit of a unicorn, but uh, <laughs> interesting nonetheless. All right. Yes. That's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.